Thank you, praise band. Well, good morning, church. If you would take your copy of God's Word and open with me to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark. We're going to be in a number of different passages this morning. I would encourage you to grab a Bible. There should be one in a chair that is in front of you or nearby. Uh, pull it up on your phone. Find it. Find these words for yourself so that you can know if what we are talking about is true. And if it's true, test it and, and put it into practice. Mark chapter 1. When the Red Sox designated hitter David Ortiz steps to the plate, there's no time to think about physics. He's trying to decide what is the pitcher going to throw in this situation. He's trying to eliminate as many possibilities as he can and, and use whatever information he has before and then watch as the ball uh, comes out of the pitcher's hand. He has no time to think about physics, much like me when I was in high school. No time to think about physics. But we have a little time to think about physics this morning. Scientists have measured that a major league batter will have between 150 and 250 milliseconds to process all the information and decide whether or not if he wants to swing at the pitch. If he does swing, and if he does make contact, as David Ortiz often does, something amazing happens. All within seven-tenths of a millisecond the ball changes direction. The ball hits the bat going 90 miles an hour one way and then comes off the bat 110 miles per hour the other way. In seven-tenths of a millisecond, it changes direction and goes the opposite direction. It was going towards home plate and then turns and goes out towards left field. That is repentance. David Ortiz made the ball repent. For the last seven weeks, we have been talking about how the gospel forms the foundation for living the Christian life. It's not just what we need for coming into the faith. It's not just how you get started in the faith. But the gospel is, in fact, needed all throughout your Christian life. It's the foundation upon which we stand. And today we come to the often spoken of, yet often neglected, activity of repentance. Just like with the gospel, we as Christians are prone to forget about repentance. We're prone to misunderstand or perhaps even ignore the role of repentance in the Christian life. But, Christ, but for Christians, repentance is foundational. It's elementary. It's elementary, dear Watson, elementary. We could say that for the Christian, especially for the healthy and mature Christian, repentance is a lot like reading. It's an elementary activity. It doesn't take much effort. It doesn't take much mental processing or that you're aware of, but it's something that you do every single day. It's an activity that we practice every day without thinking. And so today I would like to explore this foundational topic of repentance, but I want to add an adjective to it. Let's think of it in terms as lifestyle repentance. 
lifestyle repentance. We're going to see specifically, I pray, how the gospel, how gospel-centered lives are centered around gospel-centered repentance. The gospel-centered life is a life driven by gospel-centered repentance. Now, we're going to look at a couple different passages to, to see this this morning, but I'd like to start in Mark chapter 1. Look down at Mark chapter 1, verse 14. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Will you pray with me this morning, and let's be sure we have help for the work we need to do. Father, if you don't come by your Spirit and help us this morning, nothing of lasting value will be accomplished. I mean that, Lord, and I pray that you would give us the help that we need, not because we deserve it, not because we're worthy, but because you're good. So, Father, I pray this morning that my words would fall to the ground, let them blow away and be forgotten, because no man needs to hear from me, a mere man. We need to hear from you. So let your word remain, and let it bear fruit. Let it, let it take root in our hearts and bear lots of fruit, so that all would look on and see your power to save. Do that this morning, we pray, and we'll give you glory as you deserve. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, beginning in the book of Mark, I would like to draw out four different truths or four points about repentance. The first thing that we can see is this, that the life of a Christian is a life of repentance. The Christian life is repenting. That's what it is. That's what we do. The life of a Christian is the life of repentance. Just as when we come to the gospel, we must continue to believe the gospel, we must continue in our repenting. When Jesus came onto the scene in Mark chapter 1, it says that he came to announce the gospel. He came proclaiming the contents of the gospel. He came explaining the kingdom of God, and he said two things. Repent and believe. Repent and believe the gospel. He makes it clear. You can see there in verse 14 that the message that he was describing is the gospel message itself. Repent and believe the gospel. That is the gospel message he proclaimed. He came saying, the kingdom of God is here. I am bringing in the kingdom of God. So what does that mean? Repent and believe. These are the two central commands of Jesus. If you were to sum up the teaching of Jesus, you could do it with these words. Repent and believe the gospel. That is, if you want to follow Jesus, if you want to go to heaven, if you want to be saved from your sins and saved from the fires of hell, you must do two things. Repent and believe the gospel. Most of us just, we just talk about belief, faith, faith, but that's not enough. If you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, you must repent and believe the gospel. 
how is it that you're able to identify a Christian? How do you know if a person's a Christian? We live in the South. You talk with many folks in the park or at work, and if you ask them about their faith, they say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. How do you know? Being a member of a church should be good enough, but, but it's not. Professing faith is not enough. How is it that you can know if your child has turned from his sins? How do you know? How do we evaluate a profession of faith? By repentance. If someone, someone a Christian is someone who repents and believes the gospel. If you are to be saved, you must repent and place your faith in Christ. That's another way of saying believe the gospel. That is, that's what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is someone who is turned away from his sin like a bat hitting a ball. The ball is changing directions, turning from his sin and turning to Christ, the person of Christ, to save him from sin. I'm lingering here because we need to notice that Jesus did not mention one thing. Jesus did not describe the kingdom of God with one word, but two words, two components in his gospel message. He did not simply say, repent, and he did not simply say, believe. That's because salvation is not just faith, and salvation is not just repentance. Salvation is faith and repentance. They go together. Now, wait a minute, preacher. I thought salvation is by faith alone. It is. You're making it sound like that I've got to do something else. I've got to work. I've got to repent. You do. You have to repent. I want to try to show you that true faith and repentance go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. We'll talk about this quite a bit more tonight, but I want to show you briefly that faith and repentance are really, they're really just two sides of the same coin. Have you ever met someone who says, I believe in Jesus Christ. I've accepted him as my Savior, but not as my Lord. People may not say that, but they live like that, right? I have accepted Christ as my Savior, but then they don't obey. They don't repent. You cannot have Christ as your Savior and not have him as your Lord. That is nonsense. That makes no biblical sense. Yet that is so much of American Christianity. Faith without repentance. And guess what, church? A half gospel is no gospel. A half gospel is no gospel at all. You cannot accept Christ as Savior and not accept him as Lord. When my wife and I lived in Myrtle Beach, I was, we were in a running club. One of the primary reasons was we wanted to tell folks about Christ. And most folks who don't know about Christ, they don't come here. Some do, praise God. So I was actually, I was out with dinner with this guy, and I was sharing the gospel with him. And with tears and with weeping, he said, I need a Savior. I need, I need Christ. And right there, he prayed, I thought, to have Christ forgive him of his sins. Yet nothing in his life changed. He continued headstrong in his sin. He's not a believer. To my knowledge, he's still not a believer. It is not enough to simply claim faith. It is faith plus repentance. They go hand in hand. 
The Bible is continually talking about how salvation is connected with repentance because repentance is the mark of faith. It is the proof of saving faith. Jesus said in Luke chapter 13, do you remember this? I tell you, unless you repent, you'll likewise perish. He says nothing of faith. He says nothing of faith here. There are times that Jesus preached the gospel of repentance without faith because they go hand in hand. And here's why. If you're going to have faith in Christ, then you must agree to follow him. If you're going to have faith in Christ, you must agree to follow him, to turn and to follow him. If you're going to follow him, that means you have to stop following the world. You have to stop living in sin. The Bible says no one can serve two masters. You can't love your sin and then love Christ. You can't serve your sin and serve Christ. You'll serve one or the other. Repentance is always a turning away from something into something else. The ball was going towards the catcher, and now the ball is going towards left field. It changes direction. We'll address this in quite a bit more detail tonight, but the key point to see this morning is that you cannot have genuine faith without also having true repentance. Repentance is the fruit of faith. Okay, okay, so what does that mean? What, what, is, what does all that mean? I mean, well, think about it like this. How can you find a Christian? How can you tell if you're a Christian? How can you tell if someone else is a Christian? Christians repent of their sins. Christians repent of their sins. That's what we do. Not just once, not just in VBS when we were eight, but we repent continually and constantly of our sins. For the Christian, repentance is a way of life. We don't just believe in Jesus once. We continue to do so. We don't, we don't just follow Jesus once. We continue to do so. We have turned away from our sins into Christ. Think about it like this. I don't know if you've ever seen these around. You might have one of these on your car, and you might be a little embarrassed right now. But I've seen, I saw this the other day. I was sitting at a stoplight and saw a bumper sticker. It says, soccer is life. <laughs> that seems like a really lame life to me. Have they seen football, right? Okay, anyways, I'm sorry for two of you. Uh, all right, okay, so, so soccer is life. They're saying that, that or fishing or, or tap dancing or whatever your thing is, all right, th this is life. What does that mean, right? What does that mean? It means I love this thing so much. It is so important to me. I'm going to organize my life around it, and I'm going to continually do it, right? Can you imagine a guy with a sticker, soccer is life? Oh, I quit in high school, right? It's not your life. It was your life, right? It's, that, that's, that's how it works. You see, for the Christian, repentance is life. Repentance is life. It's not something we just do once when we're saved. That doesn't even make sense. It's something that we continue in. Repentance is how you maintain your profession of faith. Imagine if you met someone who said, I'm a Christian. I used to believe in Jesus. What, what would you say to that person? You say, friend, no, you're not a Christian, Right? You're, you're not a Christian. That you, you, you can't used to believe in Jesus. You have to still believe and place your faith in Jesus. You see, Christians believe in Jesus, and the same thing is true for repentance. Christians practice a lifestyle of repentance. Christians repent. The great reformer, 
Martin Luther. We're celebrating the 500th anniversary of this this year, actually, this October. He famously said, when he nailed the 95 Theses on the door at Wittenberg, he said, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. You see, we should never stop Need, we, have no, we will never stop needing to repent, and we will never stop needing to believe the gospel. They go hand in hand. So much of this series has been, we suffer in our walks because we don't believe the gospel. The same thing is true with repentance. We suffer when we don't repent of our sins. Just in the same way that Christians can drift away from the gospel, I fear that we can easily drift away from repentance. And here, here's what we do. Here's how this works. We, we've become experts at false repentance. And that's the second point this morning. If the first point is all of life, all of the Christian life is repentance, the second one is that we must beware of false repentance. Beware of false repentance. Repentance is really hard, isn't it? Right? It, it, can, it can be painful. And since we don't really like that, what we do is we twist it and we distort it to try to, to try to make it different for us. And yet one of our greatest needs, the greatest need in gospel-centered living is constant gospel-centered repenting. To understand and actually practice repentance in our lives. Yet for most of us, repentance is a dirty word, isn't it? It's something that you do occasionally. Like maybe Maybe it's, it's something, it's got a lot of negative connotations. Maybe it's something that you do only when you do something really bad, right? Or, or maybe you feel really bad about it. Or maybe you just got caught and the consequences are bad. You with me? Maybe, you know, we, we feel bad. We feel ashamed. And, and maybe it's genuine conviction and we feel miserable. And so we do something to try to make up for it. Maybe you buy flowers, bring flowers home to make up for those cruel words. Maybe you work really hard. Maybe you promise to never do it again. I will never look at those images on the internet again. I promise, I promise. But that's not the biblical idea of repentance. There's, that's actually much more like the medieval Catholic idea of penance, where you feel really bad about something and you do something to stop feeling bad. You're trying to get rid of the guilt. And you see, the problem with that, besides the fact that it's not biblical, which is significant, but is that it's entirely self-centered. We as sinners can make our repenting about ourself, and we can make it sinful. We turn our repentance into something else that is a vehicle for our own selfishness. We have a tendency to let our sin even pervert our repentance. This happens when repentance isn't really concerned about God. We're not concerned about the, the shame we've brought to his name. We're not concerned about the pain that our sin has brought to other people. We, we just want to feel better. We want to get our reputation back. We want to do damage control. We want to mitigate the consequences. Maybe you just want to get your wife off your back. You want peace in the house again, so you do what you got to do to, to sort things out. Or maybe you just want to get rid of the guilt or lessen the consequences because they interfere with our life and they disrupt our peace. 
This is false repentance. It doesn't address the real root of sin in our lives. And, and because, you see, when we do this, we're not really repenting. When we don't really repent, when we don't turn from our sin and deal with our sin at its root in the heart, we'll still suffer from its presence in our life. Think about one of the most painful conflicts you've had in your relationships. Maybe it's in your marriage, or maybe it's with a close, a close friend, a big fight, right, with your spouse or your kids or, or whoever. Maybe you've said some really hurtful words. You ever done that? I can't believe that just came out of my mouth. You ever had that experience, right? Maybe you said something terrible like, I wish I'd never married you. What, what do you, how do you, what do you do, right? How, how do you sort that out? How do you repent? What does repentance look like? Perhaps your effort to repent sounded something like this. I'm sorry that I hurt you. I shouldn't have said that. Will you forgive me? Is that repentance? Is that, is that repentance? It's a start, but it's, we're not quite there yet. It, it's a start, but that's not true repentance. You see, your spouse is sitting over there still reeling from the pain of the words that you just said. And all of a sudden you realize it and you immediately blurt out, the, you, you blurt out an apology, right? You're saying that my words hurt you, I'm sorry for that. What was the sin? Are your words the only sin? Are, are, your, are your hateful words the only sin? Or is it more than that? Is it, is it just that you said some words that you shouldn't have? Or could it be that you have a hateful heart? Jesus said in Luke chapter 6 that, that our words and our behavior and our actions and even our thoughts are the overflow of what's in our heart. So when, you, when something comes out of your mouth and you're shocked that you just said it, that's revealing what's in your heart. Sin doesn't begin with our words, it ends in our words. And so the selfishness and the hate is not just in the words that you're apologizing for. That selfishness and hate lives in your heart. And so if you're going to deal with that, you need to address the root sin that's caused so much pain to your spouse. You see, we need to be able to distinguish true repentance and false repentance. The Bible teaches, actually, that there are two types of repentance, true and false repentance. We don't have time to go through this whole passage now, but flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Verse 10. Let's just look at verse 10 together. Paul's speaking about these two different types of repentance, and he says, there's a godly grief, or sorrow, that produces a repentance that what? It leads to salvation without regret. But worldly grief produces death. You see that? There's two types of sorrow, two types of grief, two types of sadness about sin. There's a godly grief that actually produces real repentance in life, right? Life comes when you repent and confess your need for a Savior. But there's also a worldly grief that just produces death. It'll just make things worse. And left unchecked will lead you to hell. What's, what's the difference here? 
We don't have time to work through the whole passage, but Paul goes on to describe that there's a difference between godly and worldly sorrow. We see several examples of this all throughout the Bible. People who had worldly sorrow and worldly repentance. Think about Cain. Or as we've been seeing on Wednesday nights, think about King Saul, who, who, who felt really bad, but the Spirit of God left him. Or most famously, think about Judas. He felt terrible about his sin. But was that godly sorrow? Was that repentance? I'd like to summarize a couple of false tendencies that we see in our lives with repentance. Perhaps some of these will ring with you. Ways that we get off track, and maybe you'll see some of these in your experience, and this will certainly help your relationships as well. False tendencies that we see in repentance. The first is this. We confuse repentance with remorse. Repentance with remorse. This is what Judas did. He had lots of remorse, but no repentance. Remorse says, I can't believe I did that. I, just, I, can't, I can't believe that I did that. Instead of fully owning what you've done and what sort of hate just came out of your mouth and from, from your heart and out of your mouth, instead what you're doing is you're defending, I'm really a better person than this. Don't you know that? It's damage control. I can't believe I did that. Have you ever been surprised by your sin? I, I thought I was a better person than that, right? Bet pastors struggle with that a lot. I don't know. <laughs> Good morning, Ty. You're all here? You're all here? You struggle with that. Instead of fully owning our sin as coming up out of our hearts, and instead of seeing how our sin is rooted in the very center of our being, we're surprised. We're just mainly surprised that we messed up. Remorse instead of repentance. What about confusing repentance and resolution, right? I promise I will never do that again. I promise I will never look at those images again. I'll never say that again. I didn't mean that, right? You can count on me. I've really changed. I promise I'll do better next time. I promise I'll never say those things again. You see, what's, what's wrong with these things? What's wrong with mere resolution or mere remorse? You see what they have in common? Both are rooted in pride. They're both rooted in pride. I can't believe I did that. It's like saying, I am really better than my sin. Right, I, I'm better than that. I, it's like saying, I'm not really like that. This isn't really who I am. I'm, I'm better than that. I'm more righteous than that. That's pride. You see, what happens is we don't want to be crushed by the law, and when our sin spews out, and in God's grace we are given eyes to see how nasty it really is, we're, we're, we're taken back by it. Maybe it's just because you got caught. Right? This is why... <laughs> I, I talk with guys dealing with pornography, and sometimes I ask them, would you struggle to look at pornography if you were sitting at a computer with Billy Graham, right? No, because it's immediately exposed, right? It's immediately exposed, and you're able to see the heinousness of the sin. We don't want to be crushed by the law, and so we try to escape. We try to get away from it. It's rooted in pride. The same thing is true with our resolutions, I promise I'll do better next time. What am I really saying? I am going to get my act together. I'll tell you what, I'm really determined, and I've got a blocker on my computer, and I'm really going to get my act together now. I'm telling you what, I'm never going to do this again. Right? I've figured this out. I've got the power to change myself. 
You see, both of these false forms of repentance are rooted in pride. So do you know what tends to happen when these attitudes live in our hearts? When, this, when we have this attitude toward our own sin, do you know what tends to happen? It's the attitude that we develop towards other people in their sin. It's the attitude that we show to others struggling with sin. We tend to be, we become judgmental and critical and impatient and harsh. We tend to respond to other people's sin with harshness while looking at our own sin with incredible leniency. It's amazing. Have you seen this in your relationships? Have you had that moment where you were so much more concerned about her sin than your own sin? You see, in our pride, we think, hey, I'm going to change myself. I can change myself and get my act together, so you should be able to as well. And in fact, you should do it now. How about yesterday? Why don't you go ahead and get this sorted out so we can go back to normal? You see, we, we drift, when we drift away from a lifestyle of repentance and turn even our own repentance into a vehicle for our own selfishness, it's false repentance. We drift away from the gospel. And we're left as really proud people who don't really need Jesus. You see, in our pride, we're battling against the law. We're fighting. We're fighting that bottom line in the gospel, in the cross chart. We're fighting it from going down. We don't, we don't, want, it, we don't want to agree with what the law says about us. We don't want to become more needy. We don't want to be humbled, right? I think it was Mark Driscoll who once said, God has two plans for your life. Plan A is humility. Plan B humiliation, right? You get it either way. We, we don't want to be humbled. We don't want to be more needy and more desperate. We just want to get rid of the guilt and get rid of the consequences of our sin. But is that true repentance? I mean, that's what led Judas to hang himself, to get away from the guilt. One of the best places in the Bible that we see a picture of true repentance is in Psalm chapter 51. If you would turn there, Psalm chapter 51, We read a portion of this together this morning, Psalm 51. While you're turning there, let me remind you of the the occasion for this famous psalm. King, King David is, this is a psalm that's written by, by King David. It's, it's, he, after he's committed the second most famous or infamous sin in the Bible. Right, the most famous is the murder of God, right? But the second, perhaps, most famous sin in the Bible is David's adultery and murder with, with Bathsheba. Perhaps you remember in 2 Samuel chapter 11 where, where David uh, commits adultery and then he lies to cover it up and then even has her husband killed so that he can take her as his wife and cover up his sin. Yet this is King David. The man after what, church? How, how, can, how can the most famous sinner in the Bible be the man after God's own heart? What is it about David that is different from King Saul or Judas? Is it that they didn't sin? It's that they repented. Psalm 51, we can see four characteristics of true repentance. We, see the, we can flesh these out in more detail later, but let's, we can see them briefly here in this psalm of confession. Look down at verse 3 and 4 well, when we read this. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before you. Against you and you only have I sinned, 
and done what is evil in your sight. Church, true repentance is oriented towards God and not towards self. It's primarily about God, and you're going to have a posture towards God, not towards self. Against you, and you only have I sinned. You see, true, true repentance recognizes that all sin, no matter what type or category of sin, all of it is committed against a holy God, that we have violated his holy law with our sin, that we have rebelled against his lordship. And you see, for us as believers, we recognize this is completely contrary to our profession of faith. For me as a Christian, I have said, I have chosen, I want to follow Christ. He is the Lord of my life, and I want to obey him. So what happens when I sin? What am I saying? No, 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 don't be my Lord. I want to do my own thing. I want to live my own way. You see, every time that I sin, I'm living inconsistently with my profession of faith. You see, we have, all of us as believers, if you're a believer in Christ, you have professed with your mouth and you've professed through baptism and through taking the Lord's Supper that you are a follower of Christ. Yet every time we sin, we are denying and despising His Lordship and authority over our lives. So repentance is recognizing I've sinned primarily against God. True repentance is oriented towards God and not towards self. A second characteristic we see is that true repentance is motivated by godly sorrow and not selfish regret. Look down at verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you will not despise. A broken heart is always a necessary ingredient for repentance. If you have no sorrow for your sin, you can have no repentance. If you have no sorrow for your sin, you cannot have Jesus. You don't need him, right? Repentance begins with sorrow, real pain. Where there is no sorrow, where there is no real pain, there is no true repentance. Again, Tim Keller, he said, he said it like this, words are not the currency of forgiveness. Pain is. You see, true sorrow flows out of a love for God and a true love for other people. And so when we sin, we grieve the way that our heart defames God and the way it hurt, the way our sin defames God and the way our sin hurts other people. If there's not real sorrow, that's not real repentance. In our sin, we, we have to ask, why is it that I'm hurting right now? Am I embarrassed that I got caught looking? Or I embarrassed, or am I grieving because this hurts the heart of God and breaks His law? Why am I hurting? Am I grieving because my marriage has been disrupted and there's not going to be a, peace, a peaceful atmosphere to watch the game? Am I, am, I, am I grieving because my kids don't trust me anymore? Or because now my job's in jeopardy? Or because I missed that relationship? Or are you grieved because your words have dishonored God and hurt those that you love? Nobody wants to get caught in their sin. Nobody, right? No, sin brings shame. Adam and Eve didn't want to be exposed as naked. Sin brings shame. We don't want to be caught in our sin. And nobody likes it, but for worldly sorrow, they just end there. 
All, all they do, I mean, think, think about, uh, we, we see this in the media all the time, these fake kind of apologies, right? Think Bill Clinton or Tiger Woods or, or Anthony Weiner, right? These kind of half apologies. I'm really sorry that I got caught, right? That sort of, that sort of thing. You see, true repentance is not primarily focused on how bad the consequences of sin are. It's, it's focused on the pain and the damage that is done to God and to the people around you. That's why true repentance will include working to make restitution for those that we've hurt. It includes owning the full consequences of our sin. Out of love, it, it attempts to, to take on some of the pain that we've caused in our sinful actions, to take it away from those we love and those that we've hurt. True repentance is driven by godly sorrow. A third thing that we see is that True repentance is concerned with the heart and not just behavior. Look down at verse 10. David prays, create in me a clean lifestyle. No, he doesn't, right? What's he say? Create in me a clean heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God. You see, true repentance deals with sin not on the behavioral level, but on the heart level. On the heart level, you have to confess and identify and address what's going on in the heart, not just in your actions. This is why so much of our apologizing doesn't work. This is why after the fight, your relationship doesn't seem to heal, because you've given some half kind of apology. It's not dealing with the root issue. When we have godly sorrow for our sin, we will own our sin. We're not going to defend it. We're not going to argue about it. If we're reminded about it the next day, we still own it. We're going to own our sin and the consequences that come with it. You see, false repentance says, I can't believe I did that. Yet true repentance says, I'm sorry that I did that. My sinful, my sinful behavior, you know what it reveals about me? That I'm wicked and I need a Savior. Church, Christian, do you realize that every time you repent, you have a chance to share the gospel with whoever you've sinned against? I'm a sinner. You see it. Don't you see it? I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. Which brings us to the fourth point about true repentance. True repentance is quick to run to Jesus. True repentance looks to Jesus for deliverance and for the penalty, from the penalty and the power of sin. Psalm chapter 51 is not a letter to a person. It's a prayer to God. He addresses it to God. David, the royal sinner, ran to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. You see, true repentance does not try to fix itself. It doesn't try to just sort it out. True repentance runs to Christ. It admits that it is crushed by the law. See, look what I've done. Look what I'm really like. I say these words, that means I've got that kind of heart. I can't live up to the law. And since I can't live up to the law, guess what? I need a deliverer. I need a savior. I need someone who will live up to the law for me. You see how the gospel-centered life drives us to an action, an activity of repentance? See, that brings us to the final point, is that the gospel is what leads us to repentance. The gospel drives us to repentance. 
This is why our understanding of repentance is so closely connected to the gospel. And really the way that you view God. If you view God as constantly judging you based on your sin, constantly measuring you and trying to decide if he's going to love you or bless you and all that because of your sin, you'll be afraid of him. You'll be scared to repent. You'll be scared to run to him asking for help. It's because you don't understand the gospel. If you're scared of God, you have to hide from God. And in the gospel, we hide from God in Christ. If you're not scared of God and his wrath, if you're, not, if you're not amazed by his kindness, then you won't run to him. You see, when you have a rich view of God's kindness, the, the kind of view that we see in the gospel, as the cross gets bigger and bigger, we'll be compelled to go more and more to believe the gospel, to acknowledge God's holiness and to acknowledge our own sinfulness. The gospel compels us to repent. Paul says it specifically like this in Romans chapter 2. Don't you know about God's kindness? It's what leads you to repentance. His kindness pulls us towards him, knowing that he will not meet us with anger, but with kindness. When we believe the gospel, when we acknowledge the holiness of God as seen in his law, and when we acknowledge our sinfulness as seen in our behavior and in our hearts, that puts us in a constant posture to repent because we see that we need a Savior. We're humbled by the law, and we're amazed. We're so amazed by God's love that, that every time we sin, we run to Christ. You're not going to wear it out. You're not going to wear it out. You're not going to find the end of His grace for you. We run to Christ, trusting in His forgiveness and in His work to free us from the penalty and the power of sin. You remember Jesus described the gospel how? Repent and believe. It's not enough to just, to just repent. You see, as we understand what the law says about us, and we understand that sin is not just something that we do on bad days or when we lose control. Our sinfulness is our condition. And if our sinfulness is our condition, then repentance has got to be our lifestyle. Repentance is ongoing and regular and constant. It is an everyday sort of thing, like you're reading. Repentance is the constant renewal of your profession of faith, the moment-by-moment -moment maintenance of your profession that you trust in God and not your works for salvation. You see, just like David, the mark of a man after God's own heart is not that we don't sin. John says, if you, if you confess it, if you don't think you sin, you're a liar, and the truth of God is not even in you. The mark of a growing Christian is not that you don't sin. It's that you repent. It's that you repent. That's a man after God's own heart. The man who, when he sins, he runs to the Savior. Repentance is a lifestyle. You could describe it like this. Repent. Repent believe, repeat. Repent, believe, repeat. That's the Christian life. Repent. Through God's Spirit, you see ways that you've broken God's law. Maybe a loving person tells you about how you've broken God's law. God reveals to us through His body and through His Word and through the community ways by His Spirit that we've broken His law. And so how do we respond? We could despair. 
We could cover it up. We could hide. We could try to explain it away or defend ourselves. Or we could repent. Turning away from our sin and crying out for a Savior. We'll talk about that more tonight. But then we, after we repent, we believe that there is a Savior sufficient for whatever stupid thing I just did. There is a Savior who is sufficient. We repent and we believe, we look to Christ by faith and we believe that his life and his death and his resurrection has been credited to me and so I don't have to stand before God in fear. I get credit for Jesus' good works. I get it. That's faith. So I'm not going to despair. I'm going to see my sin as it is and I'm going to run and trust confidently in Christ. And then I'm going to sin again. So what do I do? Start over. Repent, believe, repeat. This is the Christian life. When we fail, we repent. And when we see Christ, we worship. God gets all the glory, and we get saved. Join with me in prayer. Father, we recognize that if you don't show us our need, we're not going to get there. Our hearts are too hard. Our eyes are blinded by sin. So, Father, I pray that in your mercy you would reveal to us specific, concrete ways that we've transgressed your law. Father, we know that there are people who are here who don't sense their need for you. And so, Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would open their eyes to see Help us to see our need for a Savior and then help us to see Christ as sufficient. I pray, Father, for those, if there is any secret sin, any sin that that we're refusing to repent from, Father, would you reveal that, that we might find times of refreshing that come with confession and repentance. We ask this in your name. Amen.